1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in Economics, part of the New Books Network. This is Andrea Bernardi from Oxford Brooks University, your host. Today I'm with Professor Michael Heller to talk about the book that he has just published with James Salzman. The title is MINE: How the Hidden Rules of Ownership Control Our Lives. This is by Michael Heller and James Salzman. It was published by Doubleday in 2021. Michael, welcome to the podcast.
2: I love this podcast. Great to be here.
1: Um, can you tell us something about uh, your affiliations Uh, I will briefly mention uh, those of James Salzman who is a professor of environmental law uh, with double appointment at the University of California in Los Angeles and in Santa Barbara and he was also at Duke University and he wrote a very interesting book that we need to buy Uh, the title sounds super interesting Drinking Water a history that was praised and reviewed by the New York Times and the Washington Post What about your past affiliation and your current affiliations?
2: Well, I've been teaching law for about 25 years. I'm currently a chair professor at Columbia Law School in New York City. I teach and write about ownership. A a previous book, some of your listeners may know, that I wrote is called The Gridlock Economy, How Too Much Ownership uh, Stops Innovation and Costs Lives. Uh, Currently, I'm working on trying to think about new problems in ownership and how they relate to economics and to everyday life.
1: I saw in your biography that you had an appointment at Columbia University. You were the vice dean for intellectual life. I don't know exactly what it is, but I am sure that every school should have such a dean devoted to intellectual life. I I wish there was one here. Uh, Anyway, the book, by the way, is advertised by a very nice website where you can also meet the author. And this is mindthebook.com. Let's start uh, you have chosen a topic which is, of course, very important in economics and in law, and now it's also the, the, the main topic of a new field, which is the combination of the two. And I'm talking about law in economics or the economic analysis of law. Uh, but how did you end writing with your author a book, a popular book about a topic which is not the most popular topic you might imagine?
2: Well, everybody knows about ownership. This is something that kids are aware of from the very earliest days. It's one of the first words you hear in every culture on the playground, mine, mine, mine. So it's not maybe necessarily a topic you think about so much as an adult, but a hundred times a day, every one of us is in the middle of ownership conflicts. Mostly they're invisible. Mostly we think of ownership as being natural and just in the background. So what we were trying to do in this book, Jim and I, is to make the ordinary conflicts that determine who gets what and why all day long to make those visible for readers who don't really want a heavy slog. So the but the origin of this book is that Jim and I have both written trade books in the past. And we thought, wow, if we can work together, we can try to have some really cool stories. That would be just super fun, counterintuitive, maybe infuriating for readers that would make a topic uh, like this come alive. So our model actually was Freakonomics, which some of your readers, some of your listeners may have read at one point, where the authors there took microeconomic theory and made it super fun. Like, why do sumo wrestlers live with their, um, you know, why do they cheat? And why do drug dealers live with their mothers? Or another book like Nudge with uh, Cass Sunstein and Thaler, where they made cognitive biases fun and interesting. So that was really the model for us, and very, the model that we stuck very closely to. So how do we take a topic like ownership? which is omnipresent. It is part of our everyday lives. How do we make that fun and engaging for readers in the same way as Freakonomics and Nudge?
1: You explain in the book that ownership is not that simple and natural. In fact, uh, it is intrinsically controversial and even linked to inequality. We'll come to to this topic uh, in a second. Um, and you you start with the example of uh, of kids and this natural uh, idea, but also you 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 mention Adam and Eve and the conflict about uh, the, the 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 famous apple, and you conclude that since then ownership has been on the grab. This makes me think. Uh, about um, the, the quote by Jean Jacques Rousseau and uh, this natural uh, attempt to grab for properties, and in particular, his quote, uh, which was uh, the first man who, having fenced in a piece of land, said, This is mine, and found people naive enough to believe him, that man was the true founder of civil society and modernity as well. So um, but there aren't, you have chosen not to use many um, academic references, traditional references. For example, you can find, for example, Marx in your book. Um, can you tell us something about this choice?
2: Well, absolutely. So the book is informed by very deep uh, in interest um, in property and ownership theory and philosophy. Uh, both Jim and I have written a lot on that. My last book, actually, uh, was on the jurisprudence or philosophy of contract, what makes a contract binding. And it goes very deeply into the jurisprudence and philosophy. But that is not this book. We are so, we we've, we've feel that a very important part of what it means to be an academic today is to make these hard ideas interesting, the fun, accessible, actually meaningful and useful for people who are out, um, who aren't assigned to read the book for a class, but who just say, What am I going to buy on an airplane? and sit and read and maybe get something, maybe feel a little bit smarter at the end of it. So it was a very deliberate choice to have um, the book run through fun and interesting and engaging stories that everybody can connect with and that connect with everybody's daily life. And that once they see these stories, they will see the world. Our hope is that you see the world in a new way. And that once you see it in that new way, each reader can be a more effective advocate for change. So for us, that's really comes down to fun and engaging stories. The philosophy is there in the background, for those who really want it. I have a whole series of academic articles on many of these topics, but that's not this
1: book. By the way, the book is about 300 pages, and organized around seven chapters and one epilogue. Uh, Maybe you can offer us a little story from each of the chapters. Let's start from uh, uh, chapter one, First Come, Last Served. So one of the things we
2: realized, and this comes from teaching this material for many years, is that it turns out there are only six simple stories that everyone uses to claim everything in the world, not just the Garden of Eden and Jean Jacques Rousseau, and not just kids in the playground, but every issue that we all fight about today, maybe issues like climate change or wealth inequality, they all trace back to the same few stories. So if you think about, for example, kids in a sandbox, where one says, you know, the shovel is mine, I had it first, another kid screams back, I'm holding on to it, it's mine, that little fight is not just mine versus mine. It's a storytelling battle between I had it first, first come first served, and I'm holding out to it. Possession, possession is nine tenths of the law. First in time and possession are two of these six simple stories. And it's not just kids telling the stories. It's also businesses and governments and they're choosing which of those stories gets you to do what they want. So each of the chapters that you asked about uh, deals with one of those six simple stories. So the first one you asked, um, about first come, first served, is one of them. It's a, one of the most ancient and powerful stories about ownership that we have. First feels fair. First is easy to administer. You don't need uh, parents in the playground to tell kids how to take turns on a swing. They know first come, uh, first in time is first served. That, and the natural feeling of first in time is part of what makes it so powerful. But the, in the chapter, what we show is that savvy businesses and savvy governments are able to re-engineer first-in-time to benefit them. People feel that they're still in a first-in-time world, and the reality is that they're in a world where ownership is highly engineered in ways that they don't even see. So let me give you an example. Um, I don't know how many of your listeners uh, spend time at places like Disney World or Disneyland, uh, but I certainly do with my kids. And it's it's, it's a fun, engaging world, but you spend a lot of time at Disney World standing in line. And people, people police those lines very carefully. There isn't a law of lines. There isn't a law of who owns what space. But there are incredibly powerful norms and culture around how to line up. And this actually varies in many different parts of the world for your listeners. In some countries, uh, there's a very rigid system for lining up. And in some, it's a much more loose and informal and um, more of a crowd or uh, than, a, than of a line. Anyway, at Disney World, there, there are lines. Um, and people think this is it, this is how you get into the ride. The problem for Disney is that this system of first-in-time left a lot of money on the table. It had lots of sweaty families, including mine, uh, just lined up for hours waiting for each ride. And what Disney realized is they could offer what they called fast passes, which gave you a ticket for later in the day with no line. What it did is it got families circulating, made them less angry, less impatient, and if, if, importantly, what it did for Disney is it got those families circulating again inside Disney World, spending money on Mickey Mouse ears and whatever else they uh, could buy, um, rather than just standing around and waiting. So Fast Passes were a way to re-engineer who was first in ways that profited Disney. Disney is actually the world's master of managing first in time. And they realized after after Fast Passes that they could go even one step further. So, for example, they could say, they said, well, there's some really rich people who don't like standing in line at all. So for them, they invented another way to be first, which is to pay a lot of money. So for three to $5,000 for a wealthy family, for the one percenters, they skip the lines altogether. They have a super duper fast pass. Disney assigns them a guide actually, who helps them uh, discreetly cut to every single line. If you want to ride Splash Mountain five times, you know, knock yourself out. Disney's made that possible uh, for those who are willing to pay for it, but they hide it, they bring uh, the guides, bring you in through a side door or through the exit. So what Disney did with First in Time is they re-engineered the line. Everyone still feels First in Time is the rule. First feels fair. But the reality is Disney now has three different systems for who is first, and they've created a way to maximize both um, uh, maximize the profits from people standing in line and from people who can pay more to not stand in line. They figured out how to monetize First in Time. So that would be one example of... Uh, one of the very most basic rules that we have uh, and how that rule has been turned upside down. So the reality in Disneyland today, as you're standing more on those lines, is it's really first come, last served.
1: Let's move to another crucial uh, issue, the, the difference between possession and ownership. And so chapter two, possession is one tenth of the law.
2: So I don't know if this works where you are, but in many American cities, after a snowstorm, we just snowed, I'm here in New York, and it just snowed here. After a snowstorm, people dig their cars out. And in New York, when you dig your car out of the snow, you simply uh, you drive away, and somebody else parks there. In some American cities, when you dig the car out, uh, you leave a chair in the street where you dug <laughs> it out. And if somebody parks there, uh, then uh, they know that their tires are going to be deflated or their tires are going to be slashed. <laughs> and this is the rule in Boston, and this is the rule in Chicago. Uh, but not in in New York and not in Buffalo. So it's a rule in some American cities. It's not the law. It's actually very much outside the law. and The violence is very much outside the law. But uh, what it suggests is that something very deep about ownership, which is the second of these stories, that possession is often nine-tenths of the law and that we all speak a language of possession. It has dialects. There's a different language of possession in Chicago and Boston from New York. But it's very. But it, what that means is that it's very important to speak the right dialect of possession for where you are. This has become especially visible today with COVID, when we're trying to all social distance from each other. What happens when you put your blanket down on the beach and someone sits too close, or you put your um, you sit down in, um, at a restaurant outside and somebody else sits too close to your table? So we all have an understanding of what how the rules of possession work. But again, like with um, first come. First serve, savvy businesses are able to re engineer possession in ways that profit them and have con- consumers not really realizing that the rules have shifted up from underneath them. That's very much true for our online lives today, where possession is very much one tenth of the law, and people simply don't realize that yet. And
1: then we got another counterintuitive statement in chapter three I reap what you sow.
2: So I reap what you sow is one of, the, again, one of the very most basic principles. It goes back to the Bible, which is I should get rewarded for my labor. So you mentioned Rousseau, but that would also, then we going maybe switch over to Locke. Again, this is not so much in the book. We're not trying to uh, have a lesson in philosophy. But you repo you saw as one of the most basic claims to making something mine. And it's also what justifies and what explains, uh, for example, why we give inventors patents or authors copyrights. It's a reward for labor. But the reality is that in many, many cases today, much more than your listeners may realize, the real rule is I reap where you sow, that there are not protections for labor. And not, and, and, and this is the surprising point, kind of intuitive point, that that's actually a good thing. So when you think, for example, about the fashion industry, uh, uh, in, in, the, in the U.S. at least, uh, dress designs are not uh, copyrighted. So it's, people are free to copy them. And whenever you see some couture line went on the runway, Within minutes, or even days, uh, you will see knockoffs in uh, fast fashion stores like Zara and Forever 21. These aren't theft. This is actually perfectly legal. And it turns out that fashion doesn't die if there isn't a the monopoly of patent or copyright. Uh, fashion is actually quite a creative industry. That's also true for uh, sports teams. So you have coaches coming up with new plays, and they, have, they, don't, have, uh, they don't own them. They, their labor is not rewarded in that way. And yet they still come up with new plays. So very, very much across the economy, in in sector after sector, we see people uh, reaping where someone else has sown. And that's actually a good thing. Uh,
1: Talking about Zara, this reminds me of a a section where you describe how, um, in in our uh, shopping experience, the, the, the stores are organized in a way that we engage with the products, be that the computer at an Apple store, or we wear a dress and this is uh, because uh, what you define as the endowment, endowment effect. The more we get uh, used to something, the, the more we will give a higher price to it because we feel it is ours and so it becomes more valuable. And so this is how our shopping experience is somehow manipulated by this uh, ownership um, urge and urge to possess.
2: Right, so, so savvy retailers like Apple are very aware of the power of these ownership stories. And they take advantage of, um, they put to use insights that come also from cognitive psychology, like the endowment effect. They know that if people possess something, uh, that possession changes the actual value they have for a good. So that very expensive iPad in the store becomes feels much less expensive once someone is actually physically holding onto it. Physically holding onto something. Mere possession changes your value, something psychologists have noticed in the world of um, in the world of cognitive biases, but it's also something that we notice in the world of ownership, that mere possession matters. So for example, if you're in a, a grocery store and you put the, the milk and the eggs in your, in your cart, you don't own them. You're just still in the store, but it would be outrage if somebody took them out of your cart. Someone just reached into your shopping cart and took out the milk. You would say, Hey, that's mine. Well, why is it mine? And the answer has to do with your, with the intense feelings that come from mere possession even when that's completely separate from law.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
1: Let's move to chapter number four. My home is not my castle. Uh, So let's move to chapter number four. My home is not my castle.
2: Well, one of our most basic intuitions about ownership is that the space where we live. My home is my castle. That's the same. And you own down into the ground and up into the air. That feeling is so powerful. And yet this is another area where uh, it turns out that the real rule is, of ownership is somewhat upside down. My home is not my castle. So let me explain how this works. So for example, can you, um, uh, if a drone, say, flies over your over your land, can you shoot it down? Or can you sue the, uh, the owner of the uh, drone for trespass? And the answer to that is very unclear. And the reason it's unclear has to do with this very basic story, which is what we call attachment. What is actually attached to your land. You own a deed. Uh, You may have a title to a two-dimensional piece of paper, but what does that give you? Does it give you uh, how far up into the air do you get, and for what purposes? Very early on, we decided that you can't exclude airplanes. The space that high up is not attached to your land. How about the space for drones? That is very much up in the air right now, as Amazon and pizza delivery companies are trying to figure out how to use airspace above people's houses for delivery corridors uh, for their products. So this is one of the live battles today about the story of attachment. It's mine because it's attached to something mine. has to do with how much control you have about um, space above your land and also space below your land. In some countries, uh, you own the minerals, the oil, the gas beneath, and in some you don't. That is also very much a choice. So, for example, if um, many people in, uh, in the U.S. rely on well water They drill. Many people in the U.S. uh, rely on well water. Uh, They drill. uh, I'm sorry. I have to figure out how to turn this off on my computer. Uh, Many people in the U.S. rely on well water. They drill down and get water from underneath. But what if a neighbor uh, drills uh, drills, uh, a well next door and sucks all the water out so the well dries up? The answer is you owned it until somebody else uh, uh, drilled it first. So that water is not attached to your land. So what's attached up and what's attached down is actually much less and much different from what people think.
1: In your book, in fact, you explain this is particularly crucial when new resources appear, for example, the solar or the wind power. And uh, you you refer in your book, by the way, to uh, a few Nobel Prize winners in economics, uh, Kahneman, Taylor, Coase. And I was surprised not to find, for example, the winner of the 2020 edition of the um, Nobel Prize in economics, Milgram and Wilson, because they they were given the prize in particular for their contribution to the theory of auction. And this is uh, somehow very much connected to your work on ownership, I suppose.
2: Well, absolutely. So um, auctioning is one of the many tools that we have to make something mine. So let me just give you a very simple example. Say uh, your dad leaves you and your siblings a rocking chair, and one of your siblings just takes the chair. And you say, well, that's not fair. Just taking it first isn't how you get the chair. So you sue first. Well, being first to sue isn't the way to do it. So how should that rocking chair be divided if it's only one chair and a couple kids? And then that's in a context where maybe, uh, maybe an auction will lead. To the best result rather than who takes it first. But the problem with auctions in many contexts, and this is true in a much of sort of intimate the world world of ownership, like a rocking chair in a family, is that sometimes the auction doesn't really feel like the right solution in a family context where sentiment and value really is what drives it. So the value of auctions in part is to find the right domain uh, where an auction can do it. Can work its magic. So auction design works very well, for example, in disposing of uh, telecom spectrum, another area that we talk about. Uh, but not so well for uh, deciding who gets um, Dad's uh, rocking chair. So for me, I guess the, the key point about auctions and the challenge maybe for economists is to find uh, to delimit better what is the right domain for auctions. It's not a. It's, it's a hammer, uh, but sometimes you need a screwdriver.
1: Now, I have raised this point earlier, uh, so the, the, our ownership rules uh, are very much connected to how much a, a society becomes unequal. And in your book, we discover something that, for example, in Europe we are not familiar with, which is the, 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 the regime, the special regime in South Dakota uh, that uh, it transformed uh, that that state of the United States in something very special in terms of attracting uh, resources and wealth, and you um, maybe you can explain this to to those of us who are not familiar with it.
2: Well, it is, this is such a fascinating and actually for me infuriating world, which is the it turns out that in the not just in the U.S. but globally we have actually two different systems for ownership. There's a system that most of us operate under, and there is a different system altogether for people who are. Uh, truly rich not the one percenters but the one percent of the one percenters and this is actually true uh, for your european listeners as well as for american ones so your european listeners are familiar with for example switzerland as a tax haven or for some of them maybe the cayman islands but the global leader in tax havens today the place where the super rich go to hide their money and avoid responsibility turns out surprisingly to be a state that most americans have not visited which is south dakota it's a, it's a cold place in the middle of the country. Um, it has very little economic activity. But what it does have is it has made itself the world's most attractive place for super rich people to stash their money. So if you're, some of your listeners are in that category, they already know this. They've moved their uh, they've moved their, their money from Switzerland to the Caymans, in many cases, uh, to South Dakota. And the reason is that ownership rules, in the U.S. at least, in particular, are done at the state level not at the federal level. It's not in the Constitution. Who gets what and why is decided at each state. So a relatively poor state, like South Dakota, um, is able to put in place rules that affect people in New York and California, Texas, Florida, the UK, France, people from all over the world and all over the US have now realized that the place to hide their money is in a state that makes it super attractive for them to do so. And very small changes in the law of ownership keep Super, keep rich people super rich. One of the things that South Dakota created is what's called a dynasty trust, a trust that lasts literally forever. It's a perpetual tr- trust that's able to, and the intention of it is to create a new aristocracy, an aristocracy based on wealth. And in America, where $30 trillion will be passed on from wealthy parents to their kids in the next 20 years, this is the largest wealth transfer in human history. Uh, these families have figured out a way to find a poor state like South Dakota that will accommodate their desire to keep that money forever in their families. Already in America, 40%, almost 50% of wealth is inherited and that number is going up rapidly as states like South Dakota accommodate the dynastic perpetual uh, interests of wealthy, uh, wealthy families.
1: Well, impressive figures. But now I would like to go back to a book of 20 years ago. And this at the time was very promising. I'm referring to The Age of Access by Jeremy Rifkin. In 2000, he said that maybe we, we might become less obsessed with property and we might be more interested in Accessing services or goods uh, like a car uh, for a short uh, amount of time, just when we need it, without the need to have it and to own it permanently. Uh, so, was he wrong in forecasting that we, we were entering the age of access?
2: He wasn't wrong, but he was incomplete in the following way. So, it is true that more and more uh, startups, like, uh, now, not startups, or big companies like Uber and Airbnb generate a lot of buzz, a lot of headlines also say today that we've reached the end of ownership. More of our lives are moving to streaming rather than owning, having just uh, access to a service rather than to the underlying product, just uh, having a day's use of a drill rather than owning a drill. Um, But that has some real costs as well. I think that maybe we're overlooked early on. I think we end up giving up something precious by this inadvertent thousand click path, um, we end up giving up some creativity, some self-expression, some self-knowledge that comes from physical, tangible connection with the most intimate objects in our lives. So for example, when I was younger, I was so proud of my car and it was a meaningful thing to me. And it doesn't feel the same way when all I'm doing is getting an Uber. I also cook a lot. And I have cookbooks that bring back memories that sort of have a flood of emotion when I see a recipe with stains on the page. It doesn't feel the same way in a world where I just scroll through my iPhone and order some food on an app that I use called uh, Grub Eats. So life a la carte, life where it's just access in the rift sense. It might be super convenient, but you know, do you really want to live in a world where you license your engagement ring or you lease your dog? And, and what does it mean to buy a gift for someone who can stream anything but owns nothing? So for me, I think, this is to wrap us up, I, f- I feel like we're at some risk of losing the profound value that comes from our most intimate connections to simple material possessions. I think ownership has a spiritual dimension as well, and it's more than just stuff.
1: But from examples in your book, like uh, the, the old tradition in England that the Troves used to belong to the Queen. Now maybe they don't belong entirely to the Crown, but you can have a portion of it. Or that this one, this one in England, apparently still belongs to the the Queen. I'm told. So anyway, I'm saying that we are trapped in a kind of uh, traditional. Uh, way of uh, perpetrating inequality or anyway at least uh, behaviors and habits and uh, reading your chapter number 7 so what can we hope about the future the chapter is uh, the future of ownership and the world how much there is hope that we would become more interested in these details and we might end with a better institutional environment in terms of inequality and ownership
2: well here's the real uh, very much the bottom line for this book which is that for each of these ownership stories, ownership is absolutely up for grabs. There are only these six stories, and once you know them, you can see how governments and businesses and parents and toddlers are using these stories to move each other around. They choose a story that steers them to do what they want. So looking to the future, now here's the thing, ownership is always going to be a choice going forward. It feels like climate change, maybe for example, too big an issue to address. But the best solutions we've come up with for reducing greenhouse gases are all solutions that are designed through very small changes in in ownership. So we talked briefly about attachment. It's mine because it's attached to something mine. The most successful uh, climate change projects have been ones that have told uh, forest dwellers, don't chop the trees down. Uh, Not because you own them, but because you have some, because if you don't chop them down, we will, we will pay you. So we treat forest dwellers as if they own the trees. And that as if attachment, that as if ownership, turns out to make trees worth more standing uh, than, uh, than fallen down, than chop down. And that's true not just for climate change, we also see that for wealth inequality. It is very much possible to address the big issues for wealth inequality through very small changes in the background rules of ownership. But in order to make those changes on climate change, or on wealth inequality, or on data privacy, another very big issue today. uh, You need to first see that um, owners are businesses and governments are picking one story over another, one of the six ownership stories, but that isn't the only story. This story is always a choice. And once you have another story, you can begin to push back. So for the future of ownership, what we see very strongly is that each of us has the tools to begin to fight back as consumers. As parents, and especially as citizens.
1: Well, personally, I am a big fan of uh, consumer and workers' ownership of firms, and we didn't discuss this today. Uh, and I think it's uh, promising, although uh, niche. Hope for the future to 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 invest more in ownership of firms um, as customers or as workers. Anyway, um, maybe at this point I would like to ask you about your current projects and so your next books.
2: Well, we're hoping a lot of people read mine, and that the next book will be mine too. It will be a sequel to this, or possibly instead of mine, ours. That's the next set. Next set of projects is to uh, keep developing. We hope for an audience that is interested in feeling smarter after they read a book we want to keep writing for those
1: people okay so we have already booked another conversation for uh, mine or ours the sequel uh, thank you very much michael um, it was a pleasure to to talk to you we spoke with professor michael heller about his latest book Disease mine how the hidden rules of ownership control our lives by Michael Heller and James Salzman, published by Doubleday in 2021. Thank you very much for your time.
2: Thank you so much, Renee. One last point. Uh, we have a very active website, www.mindthebook.com. We have videos, we have a free downloadable ebook. There's lots of great material there. Uh, I hope you read, your listeners, uh, check it out. I
1: uh, have to say, I've never seen a book uh, site as nicely done as that. So, yes, I also recommend it. Thank you very much, Michael.
2: Thank you so much.